So, January 2013, wonderful lady named Sabine Moreau, 67-year-old Belgian woman, was driving to pick up her friend in a nearby Brussels, which is only about 38 miles from her home. Now, as she started driving, she was following very carefully the directions via her GPS, but what she didn't know at the time was that it was giving her faulty directions. So she ended up driving, instead of 38 miles, nearly 1,000 miles across five international borders, all the way to Croatia. So she had to pass through France, Germany, <laughs> Austria, to Croatia. She actually stopped several times to get gas, sometimes when she was tired, to take a quick nap. And she kept pressing onwards till she hit Zagreb, the capital of Croatia. Now, after a few days, her son got a little worried. So he called the police, and they were, ended up being able to locate her by simply following her credit card bank statements of places that she would spend money to get something to eat or get gas. And that they stopped afterwards, when all this settled down, people asked her, that was a really long detour. <laughs> Why didn't you realize that you were going in the wrong direction? And her literal words, I was distracted. So I kept going. In fact, I saw all kinds of signs, first in French, then in German, finally in Croatian, but I continued to drive because I was distracted. She was lost in her own thoughts, dealing with her own burden. And do you know that happens to us too? As much as we laugh at how could somebody do something so ridiculous. But God gives us a direction, a conviction, a vision. Maybe for this season or for your work, for your family, for your church life. And yet it's easy for us, for things to seem that interesting and urgent to us to divert our attention and derail us from the destination that God intends for us. And so what I want you to wrestle with this morning is what is distracting you from where Jesus wants to go? And what we're going to learn this morning is how do we resist that? So turn in your Bible, if you have one, to Nehemiah chapter 6. We're in this series called Restore, how we experience restoration by returning to God to rebuild what is broken. And that when God does that, he doesn't simply replace old janky parts but when God builds, he builds something new, something better. And that Nehemiah is a picture of the gospel and what God does in our lives. And so in chapters 1 through 3, we saw that God gave Nehemiah this conviction for a suffering city in need of a savior. And with prayer, planning, and preparation, he cast this grand vision for the people of God to rebuild the physical and the spiritual walls of their families and communities together in Jerusalem. But in chapters 4 and 5, they encounter threats that are external, internal, and even personal, and they learn how to respond prayerfully and practically with integrity. Now today, what we're going to discover is that Nehemiah needs to navigate treacherous detours, distractions on his journey with God as well. And so the big idea of the passage this morning is that we are to resist deadly distractions from the work of God in our lives and through our lives by knowing and trusting God. Now, I know that sounds really simple, but we're going to look at the nuances of it, and I want you to think about for yourself, as you build your life in Christ, as you're building up uh, 
different things and different areas to give to Jesus that we encounter sin and Satan and spiritual attacks from people that can distract us and derail us. And so what we're going to discover is that these distractions can be deadly. They can literally kill Nehemiah, we'll see in this passage. They can kill the work on the wall. They can kill your career or your connections to people. Distractions can kill your family or your ministry. They can kill your maturity or your recovery from sins that you're struggling with. And so we're going to discover this morning in the passage how knowing and trusting God guides Nehemiah to be able to overcome these kinds of obstacles. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1. Now when Sanballat with Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So let's stop right there for a minute. Verse 1, we're reintroduced to Sanballat, uh, Tobiah, and Geshem, uh, the three stooges. Uh, they come from people groups that are the historical enemies of Judah. And so they oppose the rebuilding of God's city, the restoration of God's people, in order to keep Judah weak and subjugated to the surrounding nations. And so we saw in earlier chapters that they tried to halt the construction through political machinations and intimidations in chapters 2 and 4, but they failed. So now they're alarmed because the walls have been raised up past halfway. The gaps are all closed. The gates are in progress. And so they are running out of time to stop the work of God. And so they're back for round, four, uh, round three. And what they do is in verse two, they sent a letter to Nehemiah saying, hey, bro, congratulations. We see that the work is coming along nicely. I uh, guess you win. Why don't we bury the hatchet? And we're even willing to meet with you halfway on neutral ground at the plain of Ono as a way of showing you that we're willing to meet you halfway in settling all these differences between us. Now, this sounds like a great opportunity, a wonderful olive branch that they're reaching out. And for many kind-hearted, forgiving followers of Jesus, you would gladly go because you're, you're much kinder than I am. And you would be falling into a trap because you lack discernment. You see... We don't know how to recognize Judas because there are the times that those who kiss us are the ones who intend to betray us. But Nehemiah, he sees through this overture with wisdom. He remembers that since he asked all the workers to stay in the city of Jerusalem to build the wall and defend the wall, you remember in chapter 4, he knows that what his enemies are doing are trying to lure him out from the protection of the city to harm him, to kill him. Because what do you do? If you can't stop the work or can't stop a movement, you eliminate the leader because it'll demoralize all the supporters. So how does Nehemiah respond in verse 3? He sends a letter of his own. No, thank you. I'm a little bit busy. Uh, I'm focused on doing this great work of God, says in verse 3, that if I leave the work, uh, it'll grind to a halt. In other words, he knows that he has a clear calling from God, this great work, and that their invitation, it's a detour, it's a dead end from this great work. And so like him, when you face distractions, we need to resist 
distracting opportunities by being discerning about God's calling. I look at it this way. In your work, in your ministry, in your life, many of us make the mistake of pursuing our potential instead of our calling. You've heard me talk about this before. Potential is all the things we can do instead of our calling, the things that we should do. In an article written in the Harvard Business Review, it talks about how uh, there are many companies that get arrogant. They succeed at one thing, and they start believing they can do anything and everything. And so they end up spreading their company too thin and spiraling into failure. Why does that happen? Because they're pursuing their potential instead of their calling. They're chasing all the opportunities they could do instead of focusing on the handful that they should do. And it's true of organizations as much as it is true for individuals as well. That you and I, we have a lot of things that we can do, more things that we can do than things that we should do. And so if Satan cannot make you sin, he will make you busy. Not necessarily getting you to do bad things, but neglecting important things, primary things, by distracting you. And so Nehemiah's enemies they come to him with this invitation, this distraction, this opportunity, and he responds to them, I can't do that. That's not my calling. God's great work is. Now, as you learn to resist opportunities that are not from the Lord, you need to learn how to be steadfast as well because we're going to see with Nehemiah, his enemies, they are pushy and persistent. In verse 4, they wait a little bit, and then they come back, and they start repeatedly pressuring him with the same request again and again. It says in verse 4, four times that they came to him. Do you have people like that in your life? And so these people come, and they're pressuring him, and as they're doing so, uh, they are the kind of people that we would call weapons of mass distraction. And I know that you have people like that in your life as well, people who constantly ask and get angry and get rude when you don't give them what they want. People who use guilt and manipulation to make you do what they want. And then like a little kid, they throw the equivalent of an adult tantrum because they know if they can just wear you out, that you might give in and say yes. That's what little kids do. And unfortunately, many adults and enemies. Now, what we're not telling you to do is we don't say no to people all the time. When people ask you something, no, that's not my calling, right? We need to be gracious. We need to be flexible. But do you know your priorities and your boundaries? Because those both come out of your calling. Otherwise, any opportunity can distract you and derail you from where God wants you to go. So let's start off by thinking about, are you pursuing your potential or your calling? Well, how do you know what your calling is? Well, it comes only from having time alone with God. We know this because we saw in Nehemiah chapters 2, verse 1 through 8, that he took three to four months just to fast and plan and pray. And so if you are unclear what your calling is in this season or in your life, then you go back to scriptures. You pray. You spend some time journaling. You be still and listen to Jesus. Otherwise, you are going to continue mistaking busyness for fruitfulness in your life with God. Secondly, what opportunities are distracting you from your calling? 
What are things that snatch your time and your energy away from building your life with Jesus, building up your family, building up your ministry? What are things that are snatching up your dollars and your days away from restoring your health, restoring your marriage? What are things that are distracting you from growing in maturity and in integrity? You see, there are a lot of good things that we can do, but they are not necessarily God things that we should do, and so we need to clarify our calling before we respond to opportunities. Second distraction, verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat, for the, ninth, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported amongst the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. <clears throat> and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem that there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. So in verse 5, Sambalot, he sends a fifth letter where he switches up his tactics a little bit. You see, back then, is the, the closest equivalent they had to email, phone call, texting, whatever. They would send letters to one another to, for official business. And those letters were always sealed with wax. You fold it up, seal it with wax, stamp it with a signet ring that belongs to your family crest only so that people would know, oh, this came from the Lee family, from the official representative of the Lees. That makes it official, and it also makes it confidential. What does Sanballat do? He sends an open letter, unsealed, for the same reason that people send open letters today. He wants to put Nehemiah on blast so that anyone and everyone can read, comment, like, subscribe, and spread this accusations and misinformation. It's very unusual that that, that never happens, having an open letter in the Old Testament or in biblical times. And so in verses 6 through 7, he says, there have been reports. In other words, there's rumors that are circulating amongst all our neighboring nations. And of course, my unbiased friend, Geshem, also says that you have built this wall to fortify your position and power because you intend to rebel against the Persian Empire. And so you've hired these puppets, I mean prophets, to anoint you and declare you as the messianic king who has prophesied to come and restore the kingdom of Judah. And that you intend to set yourself up to be that king. And so this is an open letter doing what? criticizing Nehemiah's character, his motive for building the wall. And so in this open letter, Sanballat goes out. He publicly challenges this guy, puts him on blast. So now, how about now? Are you ready to meet up finally? Better for us to settle these serious charges before they accidentally make their way to the real king, the emperor of the P Persian Empire. Sounds like a threat, doesn't it? So how does Nehemiah respond in verse 8? with truth, with truth. Because it's very easy for us to sometimes run and hide when we're scared, when people are threatening us or criticizing us. He says, with truth, none of that is true. You're deluded. You're making up these alternative facts. 
Now, why would they bother doing that with him? Verse 9, because you want to scare us. You want to scare not just Nehemiah, but the Jewish people. So what's happening here is Sanballat and his enemies want to demoralize the people by discrediting Nehemiah's character. Because you remember previously in chapter 5 that the, the people of Judah, they have been courageous, they've been sacrificial for the Lord because Nehemiah, their leader, he's down in the trenches with them, putting God's interests and integrity first by his example of humility, generosity, and sacrifice. He is a great example. And of course, they, will, they love working alongside him. But if it started sounding like secretly, that he's securing his selfish ambitions. I want to be king. That's why all this is being moved into place. Then it would completely undermine his moral authority that people have put their trust in. The Jewish people would not let him lead then, and the Persian king would not let him live if that were the case, if he was trying to set up high treason. And that would be not only the end of the building project, but the end of Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah, he must respond to those criticisms of his character as a leader. You cannot ignore them if you are in a position of leadership. When people criticize your work, no problem. Criticize the way that something gets done, understandable. But when they criticize your character, you must respond to them because you're responsible for other people and how they view you and whether or not you represent God well to them. And he doesn't just respond with truth. We see he also responds with prayer. He turns to God and says, these lies are weakening the people's hands from your work. So please, God, strengthen my hands and strengthen my work. See, Nehemiah, he doesn't bury his head in the sand. He doesn't bottle things up or blow up when he's criticized. He doesn't just wish them away. But he resists distracting criticism of his character by relying on God with speaking truth and with prayer. These two things in conjunction, conjunction is what he turns to God and says, I'm going to tell the truth, but it's in your hands. And I'm going to pray, and it's in your hands. And I want to tell you, there's going to be times that people will definitely criticize your character. People who don't know you, or people who just have it out for you. And the reality is, there's some times when there's some truth in it, okay? There's some truth that maybe somebody says about your flaws, my flaws. And so when that happens, it stings a little bit, but I've told you this before, we let our critics become our coaches. We learn to repent and change. But there are other times when people are simply telling lies. They're slandering you to discredit you, to demoralize those who trust you, and to derail what God is doing in you and through you. And when that happens, it's easy for you and I to get distracted. And so we can waste, bless you, we'll waste a lot of time and energy trying to collect evidence or trying to correct people or trying to deflect rumors. And instead, do what Nehemiah does. You just gently and firmly confront people with the truth, and then you don't argue anymore about it. Then you give it up to God. You rely on him. And how does Nehemiah do that? Or why does he do that? Because here's the truth. With your critics, truth doesn't necessarily deter someone who just wants to tear you down. We waste a lot of time trying to correct people, thinking that if I'm just telling the truth, just telling the truth, just telling the truth, then they'll come around. But they're not going to. Some people just want to criticize you because they don't like you. <gasps> no. Yes. <laughs> so we pray for God to strengthen us with his endurance against their words, because we do need a thicker skin, 
and we pray to God to strengthen us to persevere in pursuing his calling, and we pray to God for his righteousness to vindicate our character, right? Strengthen us to endure with their, against their words, for his perseverance to pursue his calling, and for his righteousness to vindicate our, our character. Third distraction. Verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God. Ooh, spiritual. Within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who want to make me afraid. So in verse 10, Nehemiah, he receives a final letter, a final invitation, but this time from Shemaiah, a supposed friend, a Jewish ally. And whether because of age or disability or sickness or political protest, he is sheltering in place at home at this time. Secondly, we also know that he's a priest because he invites Nehemiah to meet him in the temple, not just in the outer courtyard, but inside the holy place of the Lord where only priests are allowed to serve the Lord. Why does he do that? In his words, hey man, Sanballat and his gang, they are coming after you to kill you. So why don't you take refuge with me in the most secure place in Jerusalem, the temple? The doors are thick, the walls are thick, the place is holy. They would not dare to attack you there. So how does Nehemiah respond to this? Verse 11, first, how can I run away in fear after I've asked others to stay and persevere and protect the work of God in the city in chapter 4, verse 22? You want me to run while I tell others to fight? Secondly, I am no priest. It would be a violation of God's law and God's word for me to enter within the holy place of the temple. I would either be struck dead by God or struck dead by people who see me violating God's law. So in verse 12, in this moment of God-given, the Holy Spirit discernment comes over him and he recognizes that the Lord would never contradict himself, that he would never compel Nehemiah to sin, to break God's own law. That this is not a pastor speaking for God in prophecy, but it's a pretender lying for enemies in bribery. That even when advice comes to you from a trusted ally or an advisor or a pastor or a spiritual leader, you need to discern if it's a distraction driving you in the wrong direction. Why are they bothered trying to trick him instead of just outright kill him? Two reasons. Verse 13, that I should be afraid. You see, the Lord gave him a clear vision, but fear can blind us from that vision. God, why are you letting this hardship happen? Why are you letting these terrifying circumstances happen? 
If you're not going to rescue me, then maybe it's better if I take matters into my own hands. You see what fear does there? You see, when the danger is real, fear exposes to us who's really Lord in my life. Who gets to determine the decisions and the directions? That fear of circumstances or faith in Christ. Which of those two is going to be Lord when we're scared? Secondly, second reason why they are doing this to him, not only to cause fear, but that you should, that I should act in this way and sin, he said. What happens with fear? Fear rationalizes that the ends justifies the means. You ever do that in your life? That it's okay for me to do certain things because I'm afraid or because I need to seek my own safety and security through shortcuts and sin. If I just lie a little bit, it might save my dignity, it might save my job, it might save my marriage. If I just get a little drunk or get a little high, if I just watch a little porn, it'll help me escape and relieve my stress or my anxiety or my loneliness. If I just bend the rules, it'll save my family or my finances or my future just a little bit. But if you want what God has to give, by breaking his commands to save yourself, you end up disqualifying yourself and destroying yourself in the process. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, Jesus tells us, if anyone wants to come after me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his own soul and his own life will surely lose it. But he who gives up his life for my sake, We'll gain eternity. And so Nehemiah, he resists distracting fear by not compromising on his faith. You see, fear tempts us to distrust and disobey God. But faith knows God's character and trusts God's care for us. You see, Nehemiah is trusting God, his character through his word. And because he knows God and his word, he's able to discern that this is not what God is telling us. He's not easily misled into self-destructive sin. Secondly, he not only knows God and his word, he trusts God and his care and his righteousness. We see in verse 14, instead of plotting his payback against his enemies, he prays, Lord, you deal with these wicked enemies and collaborators, including false prophets and priests who are trying to terrify me. I trust you to turn their intimidation into my vindication. It's easy to say, hard to do, isn't it? It reminds me of there was a pastor in the former Soviet Union who talked about his time there. He said, during the Soviet Union, during the reign of Stalin, it was the worst time for him and his family as a pastor for Christians. That he was harassed by these two KGB agents who would constantly tell him, We'll take care of you. You can even stay the pastor of this church. But once a week, you need to give us a report on every single one of these Christians who come to your church. It would be easy to see how fear for his safety and his family could convince him to compromise. Reluctantly and fearfully, he responded, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can't do that to God. I can't do that to this flock. And so he suffered exactly what he feared. They sent him to a prison camp in Siberia. 
He was forced to endure hard labor, the bitter cold, and isolation for 10 years. So it seemed like his fears were quite justified. Maybe if I had just given in a little bit, betrayed God a little bit, betrayed people a little bit. And he reports, as I was forced to build towns for Stalin, they made them do carpentry work. And so the people in the prison camp would go out and they were forced to build all these little towns around the prison camp. I and other believers would spread out in the 60-mile radius. But as we were working on these little towns, building up these new towns, we were also meeting together, praying together, and fellowshipping together, and inviting other people who were moving into the towns together to, to know Jesus. And today... There are hundreds of churches in Siberia as a result of these small prisoner fellowship groups of suffering Christians, suffering people. You see, when we refuse to compromise with fear, we may lose much temporarily. But through Christ, we receive much and we accomplish more eternally. Fear is tempting you to turn back, but faith gives us strength to continue forward. Fear tempts you to be selfish and compromised. But faith makes us faithful in conviction. Fear tempts us to distrust and disobey God. But faith knows God's character and trusts God's care for us. That he is loving and forgiving. That he is faithful and powerful. That he has proved once and for all, all these things at the cross to overcome our sin, our suffering, and even death. So I do not have to be a slave to fear because the reality, reality is you can either live a life of fear or you can live a life of faith. But if you want it to be worth living, only faith can accomplish what fear cannot. But you have to trust in the integrity and the sovereignty of a good Savior named Jesus. So let me ask you, as we close this morning, what distractions do you need to resist today? What are the unfruitful opportunities, the hurtful criticisms, the fearful circumstances? Let us together resist distractions from the work of God in our lives and through our lives to others by knowing and trusting Jesus, by knowing him and his character and his will and his word. You won't be distracted by the detours and dead ends that of opportunities that are not from God, the criticisms of your integrity before God, or the fear that drives you away from God. Trust him by turning to him in prayer for clarification about your calling, vindication of your character, and fortification of your faith. You see, we turn to Jesus, who, just like us, when he faces these things, he knew his calling so that he wouldn't be distracted by the offers and opportunities of Satan or foes or even friends. Follow the Jesus who was constantly criticized for not living up to man-made standards of religious people, but lived sinlessly for all people. Trust Jesus, who faced fearsome rejection, persecution, and even execution, yet was faithful in living the life we could not live, suffering the death that we should have died, 
and giving us the gift that we cannot earn, eternal life and joy with God forever. May you turn to him to give you strength and courage to resist distractions, to drive you in the right direction till you reach his destination today. Heavenly Father, as we take this moment to reflect, we ask humbly that your spirit would do a work in us. Would you help us to see the distractions in our lives and to bring them before you today and ask that as we do, that you would give us courage to resist, wisdom to know, strength and resolve to obey. We thank you and praise you that we have the perfect one who resisted all of these kinds of distractions in Jesus. May he be our strength. May he be our redemption. Amen.